0: Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 40, where we're talking about the poems of, of Phyllis Wheatley and Mary
1: Wollstonecraft Shelley's Frankenstein. Welcome back, Autumn. Hi, Kendra. And you know what? I've been looking at this episode number for weeks now, but when you just said 40, I was like,
0: whoa, 40. Yeah. Yeah. And if you actually include our interviews, we're, we're over 50. That's so. crazy. <laughs>
1: I feel like I we know. just started this last week. Oh, time.
0: Something like that. I remember our per- one of our first posts on Instagram was me editing.
1: Sad tears for old Instagram. Anyway, that's not why we're here. Let's talk about books. Yes. So we are going to talk today about,
0: obviously, Frankenstein and Phil Sweetly for our theme of classic women. And
1: so we chose these two. So we're really excited to talk about them. There's so much here to talk about. And I will say that and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't really think we're going to have a problem with spoilers in this episode. I know sometimes that's a concern for people when they listen to this episode, but we all generally know the plot of Frankenstein and Phyllis Wheatley's are poems, so it's not like there's much, yeah. like there's not like a big reveal to spoil. yeah. So if you haven't read any of these, like this is a really s- safe episode to listen to. Exactly. Because I'm not sure how you would spoil poems. <laughs> I don't really know either. <laughs> It's not like you're unmasking a villain or something like that at the end. It just doesn't work that way.
0: No, especially not with Phyllis Wheatley.
1: Especially not with Phyllis Wheatley. So uh, yeah, so let's just
0: jump into this. Right, so our first one is Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral by Phyllis Wheatley. And this was published in 1773. So, what were some of your initial impressions of this book? Uh, I had only read one or two of her poems that were mentioned in other texts, so not really a study on her. And what I really loved was this edition by, um, edited by John C. Shields, because he, I love learning the literary context of books and like where they sit and what they're in response to so i really loved how beautiful her language is and she is it is the 1700s so she's a big fan of neoclassism so she loves the heroic couplet thank you alexander uh, pope there and but also she does like as shields mentioned she does have some romantic language in there she has some beautiful language And I really love the way that she's able to describe her faith and her religion in such a beautiful way and how you can tell she's giving comfort to someone who's lost someone because a lot of them are dedicated to people who have lost either a child or a spouse or Mm -hmm. different things and the way that she is an encouragement to them.
1: Yeah, I will say that I did find the couplets a little bit tedious. I thought I downloaded the Kindle version of this, the free Kindle version, and it was only like 80 pages or something like that. So I was like, oh, I can just like read this in a couple hours. Not so. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of need to like read one or two and put it away and come back and read one or two more and put it away more like that.
0: Yeah. And they're really beautiful right out loud. One of the things that I really love about poetry is that they, most of them are written to be read out loud. So Mm -hmm. by doing that, you can feel the rhythm, I think, a bit better and just the language and hear the words and feel the words on your tongue. And it's just very beautiful. And that's the same with her. Um, Now, the version I have is actually a reproduction of the original 1773 edition. So it's printed in that original style. So only S's on the end look like S's. All the S's in the middle or in the beginning of words look like these elongated F things. Yeah. (laughs) No, I thought that was pretty cool. And on one page, they at the very bottom they print the first word of the next page so you know what order like it goes in, it confirms, you know, whatever. And just my little publishing heart was so happy.
1: I on the Uh, other hand (laughs) was so distracted by the FSs that I had to find a different version. (laughs) I got really fixated on them and then like I couldn't not see them
0: and i don't know yeah they're they're really when there's several of them as well like when they're supposed to be like two essays in a row and it get it can get very confusing yes. they also have the cool t that like swirls back to the previous letter and uh they even number the lines of the poems which is awesome i mean that's pretty standard with poetry but i think it's cool and yeah i just loved everything about this and especially like they use the old punctuation for quotations as well, and I just thought it was so cool. Just (laughs) just let me sit here. And when they make a note in the beginning of this edition, it talks about how they tried to reproduce the almost exact way that's reprinted. So it's the idea that they're providing the public with the exact edition that is in the museum or in a collection, private collection or whatever. Which actually is cool. Yes. It's so cool. And it makes a note that they tried, but then they had to reset some of the poems. And this is a collected edition, so some of her poetry that it's not in a collection is in the back and they had to reset it so it's in the normal you know punctuation and style and different things so which is which is also pretty cool to see uh also you can get a feel for her in the original like printing but also in the current modern day uh, type setting that was for all the other publishing nerds out there (laughs) Uh, One of the great things about Phyllis Wheatley that I really love is her publishing story.
1: Yes, she has a really cool publishing story. I mean, it's sad, but
0: cool at the same time. So as we said, this was published in 1773, but she is African American. But this was published in London because in America they were hesitant to publish this. And one of the reasons is because she is, you know, she was an African American slave woman who wrote this poetry. And as we mentioned in our previous episode, both her master and a bunch of dudes had to sign a thing that was put in the front of her poetry collection that said they confirmed that she
1: indeed wrote these poems. I mean, I just, my mind boggles, like, how insulting is that? It is so insulting. It's insulting, but then at the same time, it's...
0: She did get this confirmation that they put in the front of her collection, but she eventually went over to the UK and she met a bunch of famous people and she had the Countess of Huntingdon funded the collection. So even though Phyllis Wheatley actually wrote a second collection, she wasn't able to get funding for that, unfortunately. And um, she actually she eventually did get married to a free African-American man who was a grocer. Um, and then they had two children who unfortunately passed away. And then he was taken to debtor's prison. And then she and her other child died of illness. Mm-hmm. And she was 31 when she died. So young. She wrote most of these poems,
1: like, around the time she was 20 or so. Yeah, I think she's either 19 or 20, something like that, which is actually really incredible if you think about it. And that's one thing that the essay in the back says is that some people have criticized her poems for a lot of different reasons. And he's like, hey, she was only, like, 19. I bet you couldn't do any better at 19. And that's so true. I mean, like, they're really elaborate and really stunning poems. I still couldn't write a poem that good, that's for sure. So anyway, so Shields talks about how
0: she. he says she is not a great poet, but she is a good poet, and she should be recognized for how good her work actually was. And he feels like her work hasn't been appreciated as much as, at least in his studies, that he thinks it should. And so he lays out a lot of information about her poetry and why he loves her poetry, and which is really cool. So I love how they have the extra essays in this Collected Works edition. I'm not sure what's in the Penguin class- Classics edition, but it is really cool to see that kind of literary criticism on her poetry.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really helpful, especially with someone who wrote so long ago, just to understand the context, the political climate she was writing in, or like the historical context that she was writing in, because I really think it helps like frame what she's trying to do. Yeah, and she did such beautiful
0: work, and she was a woman of great faith, and she wrote a lot of these poems, uh, as we mentioned, you know, for deaths, or she had a lot of patriotic poetry. I
1: think she wrote one for George Washington. She did. You know, Kendra, we've been talking about how beautiful her writing is. Do you have a passage that you can read? Yes. So I
0: have my favorite. Now, I don't think this is her best poem, uh, the editor really loves a poem called On Imagination. But I really love uh, a poem called To a Lady on the Death of Her Husband. Um, and this is an example of one of those like in memoriam type poetry. Um, also, just know that when I'm reading this, all of the S's are as F's. So you're just going to have to <laughs> bear with me. <laughs> okay, so it says, Grim monarch, sea deprived of vital breath, a young position in the dust of death. Dost thou go on incessant to destroy, our griefs to double, and lay waste our joy? Enough, thou never yet wast known to say, though millions die, the vassals of thy sway. Nor youth, nor science, nor the ties of love, nor aught on earth thy flinty heart can move. (laughs) The friend, the spouse, from his dire dart to save, in vain we ask the sovereign of the grave. Fair mourner, there see thy loved Leonard laid, and o'er him spread the deep, impervious shade, Closed are his eyes and heavy fetters keep that his senses bound in never waking sleep, so it goes on, but you can see how she is very much honoring the person who has passed away, and I love how she's able to make this death of this woman's husband, who's not even named, seem like this great momentous occasion and a reason to celebrate his life. Uh, in addition to, obviously, mourning his death. And just the way that she's able to create such atmosphere with these couplets. And normally, I don't like rhyming couplets as much. Uh, but I do love what she's done here. And uh, she has some beautiful imagery like azure sky. And uh, starry world. Uh, and uh, the heavy fetters keep uh, and never waking sleep and just the way she did I just think it's beautiful I think she has such great imagery that like concrete imagery that we can see in this and
1: uh and quite a few of her poems are actually like travel related poems like there's one about her voyage from Africa and there's one about when she visited the campus at Cambridge was it Cambridge I believe. I'm not sure. The way that she describes her surroundings in those poems, like she really brings them to life and they're really vivid. She just has a way with
0: it. And she has another one called Goliath of Gath, which is one of the longer ones in this. And she actually just retells, uh, you know, the David and Goliath story in like this epic fashion, you know, like il- the Iliad and the Odyssey are told in, in poetic, poetic form. And she does that the same with, you know, Dave and Goliath. And I just thought it was just so cool, especially after just reading the Odyssey, uh, reading this version of Goliath's, Dave and Goliath's story,
1: uh, so which is kind of cool. So there are a couple themes. It's really difficult to kind of like talk about poetry when it's like all these different poems and we're trying to talk about all of them. But we decided to, like, pull out some of the themes that she talks about in her poetry. And some of them are, like, the desire for something that's greater than herself. Like, it's very aspirational and, like, future-looking kind of thing. Very positive. Yeah, very positive. Like, very hopeful, too, I think. And then, as we have mentioned, her spirituality is another theme. Another one would be, like, perseverance in the face of horrible circumstances. Freedom. Freedom is a theme that comes up a lot. And then, obviously, patriotism with all— she. All of her poems about one about George Washington, about the American Revolution, and she talks about King George some too in some of her poems. She's able to write with such clarity
0: and you can tell she was a a thinker as well. She didn't just write beautiful words. She was thinking about these things. And she was thinking about imagination and one of the things that one of the essays really geeked out about was her thoughts on imagination and where it came from and what it does to us as human beings, which I hadn't even, I I hadn't thought about this. What? And so she's like discussing this as like this like 20-year-old writing these poems about it, like putting your thoughts in poetic form. Like what? I can even do that now trying to talk on this podcast and she's doing it in this beautiful way with these heroic couplets and do you want to read a couple of the opening lines of what imagination yeah this poem that i'm talking about called on imagination it says thy various works imperial queen we see how bright their forms how decked with pomp by thee. thy wondrous acts in beauteous order stand and to all attest how potent is thy hand and she just it goes on for a f- couple uh, pages, and she talks about just imagination and where it comes from, and some of the things that have come from our imagination, and just a lot of figurative imagery. Uh, a lot of times we see a lot of concrete imagery in, in some of her other poems, but this one she she has a lot of different metaphors for making thought concrete, kind of. So you're going like the other direction, and I find that very interesting. Seeing a different type of poem from this. And I can see why all of the critics are really love this one.
1: Yeah, she really does show a range because, like, from the one you read before, the more of the in memoriam style poem, and then she has more historical kind of poems, and then this mix of like really abstract kind of fanciful, more creative kind of poems. So her range is incredible too. And I haven't gotten to her other poems in
0: like all of her poems in the back, but she also um, has some poems. Uh, That you can tell she was very opinionated. And it talks about the selection of the the poems that went into her first collection. And then some of these other ones that they left out because they were more opinionated. So she has some about uh, theology. So she has a discussion or argument against atheism and uh, an address to the deist. And she's very opinionated. And she lets you know what she thinks. Uh, Only they rhyme in couplets. So (laughs) it's like... It's sort of like you think Alexander Hamilton, only for real and (laughs) in couplet. (laughs) And she just, I mean, she's so smart and she just did a great job. I didn't know what to expect when I picked this poetry uh, as our discussion and as one of our picks for this month. But I'm so glad I did because she's so vivacious and and brilliant. And there's also letters in this collection that I have where she talks about in her prose. And I haven't read those yet, but obviously this dude is a huge fan. That's yes, definitely, I'm going to finish that.
1: And also, like the version that Kendra and I both read is like the big Oxford University Press edition. But as I mentioned in the last episode, there are free versions of this collection of poems that you can download online or get on your Kindle. So if you want to just kind of see what she's like or read some of her most famous poems, that's a really easy way to kind of familiarize yourself with her work and what she's doing. Yeah, definitely.
0: And uh, there's so much heritage in. Phyllis Wheatley being the first African-American person to publish a a work and just how that tradition started with Phyllis Wheatley and has moved forward from there. And I would be very interested in reading more uh, uh, essays about her works and how they affected the rest of, you know, African-American women writings. And of course, we talked about that anthology in our last episode, so I'm sure there's some discussion in there as well. I just, uh, there's so much here that you could talk about and, it's one of the older pieces of writing that we have as Americans because it was even before we were actually a country.
1: Yeah, and that's something that was interesting. I Math is not my strong suit, but when she was talking about King George and things like that, I, I was like, why is she talking about King George? And I was like, oh, that's why, because this is like <laughs> pre-revolutionary war kind of stuff.
0: And we all should know about the Revolutionary War and what order it happened, thanks to Lynn manuel
1: Miranda, so... Which I haven't listened to yet, because I want to see it live before I listen to the soundtrack. What? <laughs> you haven't listened to it yet, I don't know this. Hashtag purist.
0: Anyway, so that, is that you done with the Phyllis Wheatley? I'm done. Okay, so that was uh, Poems on Various Subjects, religion, Religious and Moral by Phyllis Wheatley. And definitely you def- guys will definitely want to go check that out. So our sponsor spot is us. We have an Etsy store that you that is linked on our website and will be in our show notes. And there we have blind dates with the book where you can uh, where you give us your three most recent beloved books and we will send you a blind date with a book. And we've had a lot of fun doing these.
1: We really have, and Kendra asked me the other day She, when I was packaging up yet yeah, another set of orders to send, she's like, how many of these have we sent? And we've sent over 20 now, which is only in like a couple months, so you guys are like really loving it. And so far, all of the feedback that we've gotten is people love the books that we've sent them, and they're a lot of fun to pick out and send, and I handwrite little notes to stick in them and all of that. And
0: we also have Reading Woman award seals and award kits, which include stickers and bookmarks and just a lot of different things and we also have tote bags so if you wanted to show off your reading woman swag at the library or wherever uh you want to uh you can have a tote bag and i think they're pretty cool i love the design
1: we also recently dropped the price of our hardback blind date books and a lot of our hardbacks are are more recently published books and they're really some really amazing picks so if you're interested in getting our hardback or we're concerned about the price we decided to pull it down just a little bit and then also we have a survey right now which you can access i think through our, in, through our instagram and i th- think it's on our website i don't know but if you fill out the survey you can get a 15 percent off coupon code to use in the reading women's store which applies to everything in there and your entire purchase so it's not just like on one item so if you have the time to take a moment to fill out the survey, not only will it help us make the podcast better, but you can also get some books for 15% off. And we will have a link to the survey and to our store in the show notes. So our next discussion book is your pick, Autumn. Yes. So I chose to talk about Frankenstein by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. And as I mentioned before, part of the reason I wanted to talk about this book is because it is this book's 200th birthday this year. So it was published in 1818. That's pretty incredible. It is pretty incredible. And let me see if I can find it. Yeah, so it was published January 1st, 1818. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So happy birthday to Frankenstein. So this was your
0: first read through Frankenstein. So what was your initial impression of the book? Uh,
1: well, I was like
0: 20 pages in,
1: and I was like, wait a minute. What am I reading? <laughs> 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 because it was this guy who's writing this letter to his sister about this expedition that he's taking to the arctic and he's lamenting the fact that he doesn't have a friend to share it all with and i was like what is this like i have no understanding of like what's going on and if you only have like me up until this point had like a cultural idea of what frankenstein was like i was expecting some sort of like it was a dark and stormy night, and someone rolled up to a castle, and lightning was everywhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is not what this book is about in <laughs> any way, shape, or form. There is lightning, but it has nothing to do with the animation of the monster. Uh, there are no castles. There are usually, like, huts on the hillside. Um, yeah. So it was definitely not what I thought it would be.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of, like, when you read Dracula, and it's like, What? what, what Josh said.
1: I've not read Dracula either.
0: I actually fell asleep listening to Dracula, so that might not be the best recommendation.
1: Uh, the interesting thing, though, is, like, Mary Shelley, and I didn't put this together until, like, a year ago. I don't know. Like, sometimes information goes into your brain and then, like, It doesn't stick or something. I don't know. But so she is the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women. And then her dad was William Godwin, who was a political activist and a political writer. So she has very firebrand sort of parents. So a lot of people were like, well, it's inevitable that she's a writer. And she actually started Frankenstein like Phyllis Wheatley when she was 19,
0: and wasn't that the famous story where they're all trapped in a little house, and it's raining, and they have this competition to see who can write the best ghost story?
1: Yes, because they were telling, like, Germanic ghost stories, and then she was like, well, I'm going to try that. And then, like, she didn't really, and then she had a dream, and then she woke up from the dream, and there came Frankenstein.
0: So. Yeah, and it's interesting, because, you know, she's married to Percy Shelley, and they're best friends with, like, you know, Lord Byron, and so you have all of these writers like in this little confined space and she is the one that succeeded in writing this amazing story and i've always found that really interesting how she beat the boys yes and was, you know the first really work of science fiction in the english language the most part well it's yeah. it's
1: interesting too because in her introduction she kind of couches her story in this like It was a dream. It's not my fault. I'm not a terrible person. Like, (laughs) this is why I wrote this story, because we were telling ghost stories. So it's it's like she situates herself in this tradition of ghost stories, which I think is really fascinating, too. And she also, the book is very referential to her personal life. So... There's multiple references to Paradise Lost by Milton and then also The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And she'd heard a telling of The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, like, before it was even published. And so she wove that into the story, which is crazy that, like, she was so influenced by it before it was even, like, a thing yet. And only in hindsight can we go back and kind of see how important that is so the rhyme of the ancient mariner is a poem like paradise lost and it's about a sailor who's returned from a long sea voyage and he like is telling the story when he gets home which is how frankenstein starts it's about this guy as i said who's like, on this arctic expedition and he's relaying the story to his sister so there's like a parallel there and then uh which I thought was really cool. Yeah, as you can tell, like, she has so many different allusions
0: in the book to different works of the time. And, it means she would have to have met all of these really famous literary people and be very, you know, up to her eyeballs in literature because of, you know, the crowd, you know, the people she hang out with and all these different things. And she does, like, there's so much in there. And I find it interesting that you mentioned that she couches all this information because, I mean, she was a woman – publishing this really kind of disturbing book in you know 1818 which is like you know what at Georgian era or whatever like Jane Austen something like, like that whatever and so yeah I find that really fascinating that you know women have had to like oh it's just a dream like I you know haha whatever like they can't be serious mm-hmm. like literary writers they always have to
1: like try to disguise it as something else well and I think too you see that in the fact that the subtitle for Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus. Prometheus is a mythological character who is credited with creating man from clay, and he's also the one who takes fire from the gods and gives it to humanity. So not only is she like orienting herself with like these folk tales and ghost stories, but she's also like orienting herself with Greek mythology and legends and like situating herself in that tradition as well, which I would assume would be to give her story credibility. Yeah, and it's really interesting how she does that
0: because Prometheus he rebelled against the current gods of you know, and he and he gave the fire when he wasn't supposed to. He's the you know the, the Titan whatever, and then he was punished by being tied to a rock and having this eagle come and eat his liver every day. Since he's a god, it regenerates, so it happens over and over. <laughs> uh, but you can tell like there's a there's a sense that Frankenstein is being punished. For what he has created, and he's continuously mm-hmm. punished. It's not just like this one-off thing, and you can tell because he's like writing. He's writing these letters, telling all his story, and you can tell he's like in classic romantic emotional anguish about all of these things, and it, you definitely see all that through there. And I,
1: I just really love that. Yes. Well, and I knew you'd be able to explain all that better than I could, so <laughs> thank you, Kendra. <laughs> but even like on a so on a literal <laughs> level, like that happens, but like on a even more abstract metaphorical level when Victor Frankenstein creates the monster who's never named, which I also don't think I realized that before the creation of the monster really destroys his family. Like it sets fire as it were to like his whole life in existence and tears it apart and burns it to the ground. So like at the end he has nothing. So she even takes it in that way in a more of like a abstract kind of way. And I like what you said
0: in the past podcast of like the whole, you know, uh, you know, Jurassic Park. Like just because we can do it, should we do it? And it really, you know, should you know, Prometheus give fire to humans just because he can? And you should Frankenstein give life to this creature uh, just because he he can? And you know, science, you know, at the time was you know this big thing, and so there was the whole discussion of of religion versus science and how she also takes that theme as well in there with the whole, you know, creating
1: life thing. Well, I feel like with all the, especially film adaptations of Frankenstein, there's a big hoop-dee-doo over, like, the actual animation of the monster. And that part was left completely out of the narrative, which shocked me. There's a lot of description about, like, how he gathers the parts and the amount of time he spent and the amount of research that he spent and how he, like, goes to Europe because he's in... Switzerland and how he goes to Europe to like consult with these scientists so that way he can animate this person. And but there's actually like no description of like how it happens, which I was really surprised by. I was expecting like lightning and fireworks and electricity, but slime. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and know, it, it really is is like this,
0: you know, philosophical in-depth look at life and what makes us human and all of these really deep thoughts and, and like you said like you wouldn't think that from all of the different portrayals of frankenstein and his monster in you know media or whatever it's not about this thing violent and empty-headed thing and you know the, the monster is very very intelligent is. which also is not in
1: media no and like i said in the last episode he uses like eleven dollar words you know like they're huge words and one thing that really struck me by the time especially by the time I got to the end so we have like the story of this kid and I can't remember his name that's how important he was to me this guy who goes out on this <laughs> arctic expedition and then Victor Frankenstein tells his story and then the monster gets to tell his story and so the, you know after seeing all this from Victor Frankenstein's perspective the monster's like How cruel of you to create me knowing that I could never have a companion because I'm so ugly and I'm so hideous. No one could possibly love me. So, what's the point of my even existing? Which is such a fascinating question, like to even ask. You know, it's a very high level question to ask, too. And it reminded me, as he's talking about his motivations for why he did the things that he did, it reminded me of the Count of Monte Cristo, you know, Edmond Dante's in that story. And I love the Count of Monte Cristo and how he's motivated by revenge. And I felt like there are a lot of really similar connections to the monster. Who's like, the reason I've destroyed all these things that you care about is because you did this really horrible thing to me by giving me life, which is not the conclusion that I was expecting at all. Is is so the
0: bride for Frankenstein, is there a sequel to Frankenstein or is that just a movie that came it's out? It's just a movie sequel. You know, that's sad because I do I always felt bad for the monster for not having a wife or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's like if God left Adam in the
1: garden without Eve, you know, like what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It is sad. Like, I felt myself, found myself empathizing with the monster, which I did not expect at all. And I should also note, too, like, as we kind of wrap this up, is that Mary Shelley wrote a lot of other things. She wrote a lot of travel narratives, and she wrote some short stories, and she wrote another novel to. I guess it would technically be a novella. It's short, like Frankenstein, which is also only like 200 pages. So she's very prolific, even though this is like the only book we talk about of hers. But it has just such staying power in society. It's crazy. I don't know. Just a woman writing
0: in this period and having such length and staying power and not having to write under a pseudonym and just all of these different things. I mean, her mom—I mean, granted, considering who her parents were, I guess it's not totally— surprising but
1: but her mom died like right after she was born yeah but still i mean she definitely lived up to her legacy that's for sure yeah so that is frankenstein by mary shelley and it's definitely an interesting read for sure if you haven't read it i highly recommend reading it even just for the context and she's a good writer too it's i enjoyed it a lot actually (laughs) And there's probably a
0: lot more you could read about it in, like, critical essays and different things. It's old enough. It probably has, like, tomes and tomes and tomes of stuff written about it. So, um, and I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So that is it for now for this episode. Remember that we are now on Spotify if that is your podcatcher of choice. And, again, if your podcatcher of choice does not have reading women, please send us a note and we will see what we can do about that. And a please review us if you haven't already, especially in Apple Podcasts. And you can also check out our newsletter for new books, reviews, and so much more. And all of that will be linked in the
1: show notes. So thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Reading Women. Next month, we will be talking about poetry. Ooh. I know. And it will not all be poetry and heroic couplets. So <laughs> Yeah, we even have a poetry novel
0: on the list for next month. So I'm pretty excited about that.
1: I know, all kinds of exciting things. So don't miss out on that episode, so that will be in our April episodes, and you can find Reading Women on all the social media channels, at The Reading Women, and you can find Kendra at KD Winchester on Instagram and Litzy and Facebook and Twitter, and you can find me at Autumn Privet at the same places, and thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Storybound is
0: a podcast where acclaimed writers read their essays and stories, which are then scored by
1: unique and award-winning composers, with each episode hosted by myself, Jude Brewer. With Storybound, you'll find a whole array of genres and musical styles, some painful yet
0: sweet, or hilarious yet tragic, all brought to you by the podglomerate, And Lit Hub Radio. Hi, I'm So Pandep.
1: Hi, I'm Megan Angelo.
0: This is Tommy Orange.
1: This is Amanda Stern.
0: This is Phil Cly.
1: Hello, this is Stephanie Danler. My name is Chloe Caldwell, and you're listening to Storybound. Storybound. This
0: is Storybound. Storybound.
1: Storybound. This is the Storybound
0: podcast. Season two will be arriving on July 14th with new episodes every Tuesday featuring writers like Stephanie Danler, Garth Greenwell, Tommy Orange, Chloe Caldwell, and more. Make sure to subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend, because the next best thing to hearing a great story is having someone to share it with.